Hello and welcome back to Pictorial on Relay FM. I'm Quinn Rose and I didn't go to art school, but I still love to learn about art. And I'm Betty. I also didn't go to art school, but I also love to learn about art. And as we always say, we are not experts. Today I'm going to be talking about experts, but I want to restate that I am not one. I'm so excited to learn what that means. <laughs> yeah. So there was this news story I read about um, about a month ago that I'm not going to talk about yet because I want to like set the stage. Um, but it kind of inspired this episode and it has to do with art authentication. And but I do want to start with something that I'm not sure if I've brought up on pictorial. I feel like I must have. Um, but it's, there's so many episodes that everything just blurs together. So I'm hoping I haven't talked about this already. But have I ever told you about the Massacre of the Innocents painting at the AGO? I don't think so. This does not sound familiar to me. Okay, that's good. Um, Cool. So it's a story I tell a lot at the AGO because it's like one of the most famous paintings there on almost every highlights tour I take people there. So I've said this story like a million times. I just don't remember who I've said this to and who I haven't. <laughs> but I'll give like a quick synopsis. And this has to do with art authentication, basically. But if you go into the show notes and click on the, the link, that is the painting. Um, but really, the subject of the painting is not that important. Um, but I'll just give a quick description. So it's a painting called The Massacre of the Innocents by um, the Flemish artist Peter Paul Rubens. And it's a biblical scene of which, which basically depicts the title. So it's a, The Massacre of Innocent Children by the soldiers of King Herod um, that takes place in the Gospel of Matthew of the Christian Bible. It's a scene that's painted by other artists as well, um, and it's just like a well-known scene from the Bible that a lot of people would have been familiar with in Europe um, at the time and including now. But anyway, so this painting was painted by Rubens in 1612, and it's one of his earlier works. Uh, he later painted a second version of this painting, like towards the end of his life. But this painting... It was actually for probably the last 300 years, we didn't really know this painting existed or as in we knew it existed, but no one knew it was a Rubens. So until 2001, it was this painting was attributed to one of Rubens's assistants and like someone who was not very well known at all. And Rubens, who's really famous, like had a an entire collection of his other works, which were worth like millions of dollars. And this painting was worth very little. And what happened, we think, was sometime around the end of the 17th century, the painting got into this collection in Vienna, Austria, called the Liechtenstein Collection. And whoever was cataloging the painting misattributed it or, or like didn't write down who painted it. And then in 1780, someone was going through the catalog and was like, this is anonymous. And so they, that person in 1780 said this was probably by Rubens's assistant or one of his many assistants. Anyway, there, there's a long like story of like how many it, it changing hands being sold from one collection to the other, but it eventually ended 
it was eventually sold to an Austrian family in 1920, and then they loaned it to this monastery in northern Austria in 1923, and it hung there from 1923 to 2001, when this British、uh, historian. I don't know how he ended up there. I don't know if he was like invited there or he just showed up in the monastery one day. Like the story goes, this guy George Gordon, who was an expert in Flemish and Dutch paintings, he worked at the Sotheby's auction house in London. He looked at it and was like, "I really doubt this is by Rubens's student or this specific student, and I think it's by someone who's much more skilled, probably Rubens." And one of the reasons. He thought this was probably the case. Was a lot of the styles and the brushstrokes and the use of color was very similar to another painting called Samson and Delilah, which was an authentic Rubens that has been known as an authentic Rubens since forever, as far as I know. So,、um, sorry, I will drop Samson and Delilah in the show notes and. Uh, says you, Quinn, the the other art expert.、Um, if you saw these two paintings together, would you think they possibly could have been painted by the same person? I mean, I guess so. They definitely fall within the same style,、um, and they, there's also like very similar theming and like posing of the way people look in the paintings themselves.、Um, I know that like those elements are not unique to <laughs> the Rubens umbrella. Like obviously, this is these like sort of like people draping over each other in biblical <laughs> scenes was kind of what people were doing at the time. So there is that. And so I'm looking in terms of like colors used. I definitely can also, even though one seems significantly brighter than the other, there are like a lot of similar colors between the two of them as well. And it's possible that it's just. The different ways it was photographed, like the the colors might come off differently in the in the pictures that we can find online.、Um, but yeah, I mean, because you and I aren't experts, this is not something that we can really determine. <laughs>、um, but you know, you, we can see similarities. But obviously, any random person can't just say this is definitely by or almost most likely by Rubens or not. It was up to these art experts, like. Uh, Mr. Gordon and presumably other people agreeing with him that、um, eventually it was deemed by most experts of Flemish painting and Rubens、uh, to be an, this specific painting to be an authentic Rubens. So it actually in 2002 was auctioned in London, and at the time it actually was the most expensive artwork ever sold in 2002. This was. Like over twenty years ago, so at the time it was forty nine point five million pounds, which is about fifty nine point five U.S. Sorry, fifty nine point five million U.S. dollars. But this was in two thousand two. I'm not going to do the inflation conversion, but it was a lot of money back then. Still a lot of money now, but compared to how much art is being sold today, it, it isn't. But in any case.、Um, This painting it gained a lot of attention because of this, because it was kind of like a Rubens that was undiscovered that showed up、um, in in the early two thousands. So、um, anyway, so I couldn't find too much information about 
other ways they authenticated this painting other than this expert looking at it. But I know for sure it isn't just one expert. They have to do additional checks. And one thing I have read about when it comes to Rubens is that there were was information about what types of paints he used. There was a lot of documentation of his studio when he died. And so experts are very well aware of what specific paints and colors he used. And one of the ways to be able to authenticate these things is to inspect the actual paint that's on the paintings. I'm assuming they did that. Um, so, but anyway, all this eventually led me into the question of, so how do experts authenticate art? What's involved and it turns out it's a very complicated question, and I'll go through sort of like some things that I've found out about it. Um, but I guess before I start, um, is this something that you've heard about before or are familiar with? Or I guess, how do you think, other than the things I just said, do you have any thoughts about this? This is something that came up in a recent episode that we did when we were talking about uh, this Vermeer painting that got declassified as Vermeer and then reclassified as Vermeer. And so this was on my mind recently. To be honest, the whole thing with art authentication is like, I kind of think of it the way I think about physicists. It's like, I know they're doing stuff and I know <laughs> yeah. that there are people who like really niche specialize and they work together to make discoveries and you have to know a lot about specific things, but I have no idea what they're doing. And I, <laughs> yeah. I, I, I can understand it on some level because there's a certain amount of it's like, oh, like you can like test paints and like date paintings and stuff like that. Um, and like the broad strokes of like stylistic notes, obviously, you know, you can tell certain paintings look like other paintings. But when you get into the real <laughs> nitty gritty, like what we're talking about with like this Rubens and the Vermeer stuff, it's like, oh, was it this specific person or was it a different person who was like working very closely with them in their style? How do you ever decide that? And like clearly these things are not very clear because experts can disagree with each other. And so I, I imagine it gets quite complicated. So you're totally right. And it, it is definitely something that's complicated and in some cases also quite controversial and I'll kind of get into some of the controversies um in a in a little bit but to get into a little bit of I guess like recent history of how art authentication has worked is that um in historically it was only a small group of like connoisseurs that would be the people who would say yes or no to certain famous artworks being by a famous artist or not. And over time, it expanded to not just be a few specific individuals, because obviously, you can't just trust a few specific individuals. There's got to be other reasons uh, to say something is true or not. Um, so around the early... 20th century, um, it actually became this thing, a, a lot of artist foundations and um, independent experts and scholars. Uh, it became basically a job like that you can be someone who uh, appraises and like authenticates artworks. And um, also, you know, a lot of dealers, curators, um, people like who work in these institutions, they want to know for sure that what they hold is authentic. So they, of course, like will 
hire these individuals or yeah obtain these types of services um but apparently what has happened actually like since then um because around the turn of this 21st century it's and it's partially due to the like sort of dramatic rise in art prices as well as apparently litigation which i'll get into also later that a lot of these foundations actually have since like disbanded or they've like stopped doing it and a lot of experts are too afraid to authenticate things because they're afraid of like lawsuits or they're not totally sure so they don't want to say that this is by such and such people um and one of the stories that i um found is that apparently uh in 2011, there was this really well-known gallery called the Nodler & Co. Gallery, which was one of the oldest galleries um, in New York City. It was actually forced to close because apparently it was caught selling over 40 counterfeit paintings by a lot of abstract expressionist painters like Mark Rothko and Jackson Pollock. And so eventually um, it was discovered that they were fake. And then so this gallery... Again, like I, there's some additional information about this that I didn't get into, but um, as far as I know, it's kind of there, there was a lot of like shady things going on, and whether they knew it was fake or not, um, it it's again very complicated. But it kind of it's a story that shows that if you're not careful about this, like you can go from a established. Uh, respected business to you know being totally not existing as a business anymore yeah that's not great yeah and then sort of like you know in the last like century or or since forever there have been people who forge art but there's also been people who are like well-known art forgers who do this for a living like they purposely will paint or make artworks in the style of whatever artists and some of them have actually gotten really good at it that there have also been like not just this gallery but like even places like MoMA like very supposedly uh, respectable (laughs) places um, they've you know been caught also taking pieces that are um, fakes and and again like sometimes it might be the best intentions like they don't they obviously don't want to have fakes in their collection but some people are just so good at being deceitful um i'm sorry this entire conversation really reminds me of animal crossing because as we discussed at this point almost three years ago yeah there's that you could buy paintings in animal crossing but some of them are fake which is so funny the fact that there is art fraud in the video game exactly like art fraud is such a thing that even in a game that just involves selling of paintings as a one small part of the game it also involves selling of fake paintings it's so funny but what's funny in Animal Crossing, or at least for me, is I re- I liked getting some of the f- the fakes, and I in fact sometimes wanted to get those just so I can have like the different versions of of them. <laughs> uh, it's almost like finding an Easter egg or like a shiny Pokemon or something. Yeah, you get this special weird Starry Night. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. But yeah, like I so, but you know, in real art galleries in the world. Apparently, they don't they don't like to buy the fakes. And so I found a few different articles um, from like a bunch of uh, different 
uh, establishments or associations, uh, but a lot of them, in in essence, say that there's actually three central tenets of art authentication. Um, so this is a uh, a list from the College Art Association, but it, uh, some other associations have a similar list. But basically, the three tenets are um, art historical documentation, which is exactly as it sounds, like looking into the documents and uh, provenance, basically, of an artwork to look at its history of ownership and kind of use that, uh, use this background information as a way to uh, support evidence that this is this comes from a place that is legit. Um, Obviously, this is one of those things where there's usually not enough information because you need good record keeping and People aren't really good at that. Um, and so if there's not enough of this evidence, and even if there is, you need an, other um, things to support your argument. So the next one is called stylistic connoisseurship, uh, which is similar to what I was mentioning before when uh, George Gordon, a, an expert who's you know a connoisseur, um, stylistically analyzes the work and this person should be someone who is very familiar with the artist um, and they use their expertise and experience to um, to make a judgment um, but again in addition to that you also need technical or scientific analysis which you've mentioned before and I mentioned earlier with the testing of paint colors but basically this is the scientific forensic testing um, to yeah to use this uh all kinds of like different methods uh scientifically to examine an artwork and it breaks into two major types of analyses one is invasive one is uninvasive and i'll give some examples about these uh in a little bit but essentially all three of these categories or the best practice is that all three of these categories should confirm the artwork is authentic before it's determined that it actually is. So if like one of these fails, then it all fails. That I or from what I've gathered, that is the consensus that it can't just be like the expert saying yes, this is by so and so, or no, it isn't. It can't just be like if it's just the scientific thing that is supporting it that's also not okay and i guess the historical documentation is the one thing where if there's just like nothing like probably it also isn't okay but i guess you know then it's just it depends on who you believe but um that's kind of the general areas of what is um what is considered like uh, like overall what art uh, experts use to authenticate works. Um, so do you want to hear about some specific examples? Yeah, I would love to see how these things actually come into practice. When it comes to the documentation, um, so they're literally things like like invoices or of like when the art was purchased or if there are actually like official catalogs by of an artist they will review those there might be like photographs or archival materials and and basically when an artwork is sold there's almost or there should be a, an actual sales receipt that has the information and 
the best case is that you're able to trace this all the way back to the artist. But uh, of course, the older an artwork is, or the less good record keeping, the people who have owned the artworks are, the less you're going to have these. And I think the usually when there is question about whether an artwork is authentic or not, a lot of times it's because they don't have this background documentation. Um, so they have to rely on other ways to uh, to figure out if it's actually uh, by a certain artist. When it comes to the technical analysis, what the experts usually start with is the non-invasive examination of the work. Actually, sorry, I should back up for a second. Before they even get into the technical analysis, apparently what a lot of um, experts do is they'll first actually get the owner to send them or whoever's commissioning them to do the uh, authentication to send them like a high-res digital photograph of it. Um, Because apparently sometimes even just by looking at it digitally, some experts can can tell right away if it's a fake um, and then they don't even have to go further because, you know, we don't need to waste time of actually shipping an artwork over to somebody or doing all these scientific methods. Um, if even by looking at it digitally, they're like, yeah, this is this is not not good. Um, and, and one of the things that they look at, which like you might have heard of, is the signature. So um not only looking at like styles and of like brush strokes, they look at um, like how the, how the artist signs their work. And there's specific people who are like experts at reviewing those. But of course, signatures change over time. And it's also not the most, um, you know, reliable thing either, because you can also forge a signature really well. <laughs> so apparently, if through the digital photograph, they can't find evidence that it's a fake, then they'll request it to be like physically sent to them Um, because obviously just because there's lack of evidence doesn't mean there isn't. Um, So then they start the non-invasive examination, which is what's preferred because you don't want to actually potentially uh, damage the artwork. Um, So some examples of like non-invasive methods are things like using like UV radiation or UV like reflectography. Again, I don't know exactly how these things work, um, but like it's using um, things like UV and also there's like IR, like infrared transmission and radiation methods as well. So they, they use these to basically look at aspects of the painting that you wouldn't be able to like visually with your naked eye. Um, so some of these methods, they're able to reveal things like underpaintings or like um, brush strokes of like the sketch under the finished painting. And a lot of times for artists, um, the finished painting is hard to tell because, you know, it's it's very pristine and finished with and, and coded. But when you can look at the brush strokes, which is usually usually very loose and you and similar to a signature, like brush strokes or loose brush strokes are one of these things that can be very specific to every single person. So that often can help to reveal whether, you know, it is by someone or, or it's most likely by someone or not. Um, and again, like similar to what a person can get, you can also x-ray a painting um, to, again, to see like the different layers. But so what happens is if it's not conclusive from these non-invasive methods, then 
the expert will have to go to the invasive methods, uh, which usually involves taking samples of the um, paint or whatever materials that are on the painting. And usually, like, as far as I know, they do microscopic samples. They're not ripping off like a giant piece of paint. Um, it's just, it's taking like little tiny samples that hopefully you can barely notice from, I'm assuming, areas that are less important. Um, and this is where they also do these like microscopy or spectro spectrometry like um, methods. Again, I'm sure I'm not describing any of these or, or I'm not even going to try to describe how any of these work. Um, like you said, physicists, they do some stuff. But one thing that they can do is um, also radiocarbon dating, which is literally taking this like um, sample and carbon date to how old it is. And that often can reveal whether it's fake or not, because if you're trying to make a fake Rubens in even like 1950, it will very clearly show that the material you're using doesn't date back to 1612. Um, and if it does date back to 1612, there's a higher chance that it was Rubens. Again, it might have not been him specifically, but at least we know it's from that period. But anyway, so those are basically a bunch of different ways that experts can use to determine whether something is um, authentic or not. But as I, as you kind of alluded to earlier, and um, also me like going through all these different methods, um, unfortunately, it's not a hard science. Like it, it's, it's, um, or it's kind of like an art as well. <laughs> Um, to determine whether something uh, is real, a real or fake painting or artwork in general. So there, yeah, so there is a lot of controversy and there are a lot of authorities of, of artists who are, who have been like accused of being like too stringent, like they don't accept works that are probably by this artist just because there's not enough evidence. Um, but then there's also the reverse side of when when there isn't um a lot of uh, a lot of information but certain galleries and places cuz they want to make money they will they will they will say that they think this is definitely by someone when they you know when when it might not be um and apparently um i think more recently the i want to say sorry there there was a foundation that i believe that was that used to be like the authority in determining what's a authentic Andy Warhol. And they've actually since disbanded. Um, again, I couldn't find exact, the exact reason why, but I suspect it's because they just feel like either they're not needed anymore or like they're not being respected anymore or that they're too, just too afraid to, uh, to authenticate things. <laughs> that, that, that idea is very funny. They're just like, I'm out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like you know what uh, this is too stressful <laughs> this whole thing it's just so funny to think about who are going to be the artists 50 years from now that we need authenticators for because it's like i feel like <laughs> artwork that's made today you think like oh it's it's so different because things are so differently documented but that's not necessarily true because what if someone's like someone's artwork is discovered and gets really popular after they pass away or something and then like it's uh 
I feel like it's something that is going to continue to exist, but will be of very different forms in the future, <laughs> doing that internet research to track down <laughs> who made what. Yeah, exactly. Those like postcards you and I made, Quinn, um, <laughs> you know, when both of us are famous artists for some reason in the future yeah um, they'll be worth so much money yeah exactly but then no one will know um that it was made by us or no one would be sure the wild story that i alluded to earlier is actually kind of funny and it, or is actually kind of ironic because so the story i learned about basically this artist um a few years ago got sued because he had to, or he, he people wouldn't believe that he didn't paint a specific painting, and he had to end up go to court to prove he didn't paint something. Wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I will I will go through it in a second, but um, I just put the link to the news article in the show notes, which unfortunately doesn't have the picture of the painting, or at least I couldn't find it. But so there's this art, uh, artist, um, his name is Peter Doig. Um, so his last name is spelled D-O-I-G. And um, I know him pretty well because he a bunch of his artworks are in the AGO's collection. Um, and, and also there's been some exhibitions that featured a bunch of his works. But uh, basically, he's a pretty famous contemporary artist and um oh i might have mentioned him before actually when i was talking about the the rainbow painting in toronto that he did this was a while ago oh yes yes but yeah so so his artworks usually sell for millions i think the rainbow painting sold i think at the time when i mentioned it it was like five million and then um recently he also sold some artworks that are probably even more than that but anyway um so what happened was um, in 2016, this guy uh, whose name is Robert Fletcher, he was a former corrections office um, uh, somewhere in northern Ontario. He claimed that he has had a Peter Doig painting um, that he got from Peter Doig in the, in the 70s. And then so in 2013, like about just like over 10 years ago, he tried to sell it to a gallery in Chicago um, called the Bartlow Gallery. And so he said, yeah, I have this Peter Doig painting. And the gallery was like, OK, um, like, can you prove that it's an authentic Peter Doig? And so the painting was signed um, and it says Peter Doig 76 on there um so there seems to be an extra e at the end but anyway the gallery apparently was like okay that's good enough <laughs> so huh. but then peter doig was like i didn't paint this and then robert fletcher said no but i met you in the 70s and he said you were serving a sentence for LSD. Uh, sorry, you were serving a sentence for LSD possession at the correctional center I worked at uh, near Lakehead University in Ontario, and we met then. And I was your parole officer, and you gave me this painting. And Peter Doig was like, "What are you talking about? I have never <laughs> been to Lakehead University. I have never been incarcerated, and I've never possessed LSD." What is going on? That's so many things. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, um, 
so they ended up suing him because they, they sued him claiming that he for some reason refused to acknowledge that he he painted this work which obviously would mean that this work is not worth anything or much of anything anymore or at least definitely not worth what they were claiming and they were upset at that and so they sued him and anyway this was and so this was back in um 2013 actually they started the lawsuit and they eventually you know the plaintiffs which are Fletcher and the Bartlow Gallery they ended up losing the case and um in January when I read this article or in January was when the judge ended up um I guess telling the uh plaintiffs that they uh, now owe Peter Doig 2.53 million um, for basically making up all this this entire story, <laughs> and so um, yeah, so it, it it was this lawsuit that because I actually heard about it back when I was working at the AGO, but like I think this was like six or seven years ago when I first heard about this lawsuit, and when I read the story, I'm like, oh my god, there's a conclusion. Oh, thank God. <laughs> so, yeah. So, but anyway, uh, Doig finally is relieved. He's like, oh my God, I'm so happy that, like, he's probably just happy that he got to clear his name of being somebody who possessed LSD and was sent to jail in a place that he's never been to. Um, but also that he didn't paint this. And so his, Peter Doig, the, the real guys, lawyers, eventually found this information that there it was another Canadian person called Peter Edward Doige, whose last name is spelled D-O-I-G-E. And um, I don't know if they ever tracked him down, but they found his sister and his sister said, oh yeah, Peter did, uh, Doige attended, he was a student at Lakehead University and I believe he was in jail at some point. <laughs> so... Huh. So basically, so this person was, there, he was just confused. So it it most likely what happened was Robert Fletcher, the former corrections officer, met a guy named Peter Doige, who happened to also have been a painter. And in fact, was an inmate. They, he was his pro officer. Doige did give him the painting. And then years later, when Peter Doig got famous, Fletcher thought he had an old doig from years ago that he can now make lots of money off. But turns out he was just confused. That's so funny. I love that because it's like, that. why would you be so convinced of so many specific things that like obviously seem pretty easy to fact check? But it's because he just can't remember the name of the guy. <laughs> yeah. But it's just, it's so funny because, like, when I first heard about this story, I was like, you would think, like, okay, obviously, if an artist is dead, you know, you can't ask them if they painted it. So you have to go through these other means of finding out whether they painted it or not. But you would think if the artist is still alive, you can just ask them. You can just be like, hey, was this you? <laughs> yeah. And then when the artist looks at it and says yes or no, that can just be the end of the story. But this ended up dragging out for almost 10 years of the artist just having to like go to court to prove his innocence that he didn't paint something 
Do you think that the person was just embarrassed and couldn't admit that they made a mistake? I feel like that's what it was. It was like somebody who just kept on digging the hole deeper and deeper. And at some point, they're so deep that they were just like, well, I can't make my, I can't go back up. So I might as well just keep digging. And they have eventually dug themselves into a $2.53 million hole. Plus whatever cost them in legal fees. I feel better about the mistakes I've made in my life, honestly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. If you ever make like a huge mistake, just think about this person and realize that as unless you did something worse than this, which is pretty hard, that you're probably okay. I'm doing great, I think. <laughs> yeah. Um so anyway, yeah, that was that was basically an overview of how art authentication works that ends on a note of how art authentication doesn't work. That is so beautiful. Thank you for running through all of that. Oh, no problem. Yeah, it was uh, a lot of fun. And again, you know, I'm not an expert. So there's obviously a lot more to art authentication than the surface that I barely scratched. But um, I think it was just interesting to find out that it's really not just one thing. It's so many different things and so much evidence supporting each other um, that it makes me feel better in a way that a lot of institutions do take this seriously and do like, you know, regard that all three of these tenants and make sure that there's abundant information that I think there's probably still a lot of fakes out there, but at least people are trying to make sure that there are less of them. (laughs) Yeah, the Lord's work, truly. (laughs) Yeah. Well, everyone out there can be assured that they are listening to 100% authentic pictorial. (laughs) Someday people are going to have to authenticate all these audio episodes (laughs) when the AI starts imitating us. Oh, oh. (laughs) Yeah. All right. That's another story. (laughs) In the meantime, if you'd like to see our show notes, those are at relay.fm slash pictorial. Um, And we are also on Twitter or Instagram at pictorialpod. I'm at Instagram at quinstarose. And I'm on Twitter and Instagram as articulationsv. I'm also on YouTube as articulations. And speaking of YouTube, we do have a YouTube channel, Pictorial Podcast as well, where we upload uh, some of our older episodes um, onto the channel in video versions. Uh, We are running about 10 episodes behind, but we are catching up. So in a few months, you'll see this episode on there. (laughs) Slowly but surely, we're getting there. Yep. (laughs) Thanks for listening, Art Enthusiasts.